The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Applying Therapeutic Innovations Against ALL. From updated evidence to everyday practice, access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash DGJ 860. Downloadable slides are also available. Hello and welcome to Applying Therapeutic Innovation Against ALL. I'm Dr. Luke Mays from the Huntsman Cancer Institute at the University of Utah and Primary Children's Hospital here in uh, beautiful Salt Lake City, Utah. And today we're going to explore some developments that have or will have implications for the management of our patients of all ages, pediatric, adolescent, young adult, and, adult, and adults with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So the evidence uh, we're going to share was presented uh, at recent medical congresses, which include the American Society of uh, Clinical Oncology, the ASCO 22 annual meeting, and the European Hematology Association, uh, or EHA 2022 uh, annual meeting. And so throughout their presentation, I'll provide some practical points on the new evidence from both ASCO and EHA. Uh, periodically, we'll also share some, some resources that summarize important take-homes from the evidence that we'll present. And so please take a moment to download these practice tools before we get started. So, all right, with that, let's begin. So, as we know, um, if you've taken care enough uh, of patients with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, uh, you're familiar with the key developments that have happened over the past half century. And, and some of these are very seminal, and we've tried to highlight them uh, for you all today. You know, starting in the mid-60s, we were able to use combination chemotherapy with CNS-directed therapy, and, and we're able to cure approximately 50% of patients. Moving into the 1970s and 80s is when we were able to introduce asparaginase uh, products into uh, both uh, pediatric and adult uh, ALL regimens. Uh, we, sh- we showed that high-dose asparaginase does improve outcomes. And then into the, into the 21st century, uh, we see that uh, newer agents uh, are continually to come about. So dasatinib, which uh, was a, is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, was approved in pH-positive ALL. Uh, pegylated asparaginase was approved as well uh, in 2007 in the front line uh, for patients uh, with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And uh, for those patients who have uh, hypersensitivity reactions in, in, in 2011, Orwinia asparaginase substitution was approved uh, for patients uh, with ALL who have these, uh, this complication develop. Uh, moving forward then uh, into the 2010s, 20-teens, uh, imatinib was approved in pH-positive ALL. Uh, we have blinitumumab, which we'll be discussing in one of the, the key abstracts that was reported um, at uh, ASCO and EHA. This was approved in relapsed refractory BALL. Panatinib. Uh, which is another tyrosine kinase inhibitor, uh, was approved in pH-positive ALL in patients with this common T315I mutation uh, that can make uh, patients resistant uh, to TKIs themselves. And again, this is something we'll review in one of the abstracts uh, coming up. Uh, Blinitumab was approved for MRD-positive disease in 2017. And then inotuzumab, uh, 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 another antibody, uh, was also approved in 2017. Tisangin-Lecluso, which uh, was um, really uh, a, a game changer uh, for patients with relapsed refractory disease, uh, got a lot of um, coverage in the, in the mainstream media. This was approved in 2017 for patients with relapsed refractory disease. And then looking uh, at T-cell ALL, you know, a less common uh, type of acute lymphoblastic leukemia, nilarabine uh, was approved uh, in, in relapsed uh, disease uh, in 2018 for these patients. Uh, and has now actually been moved into the upfront uh, uh, treatment uh, for patients based on the COGAL0434 study. And then uh, the most recent asparaginase product, uh, uh, long-acting product, I should say, to, to be approved was calaspergase pegol uh, in children and young adults. 
And then now um, just uh, looking at last year, uh, Brexucaptogene Autoluso uh, was approved in patients with relapse refractory um, ALL uh, in adult patients. And, and then uh, the newest uh, asparaginase product, recombinant Erwinia asparaginase, was, was most recently approved in late June of 2021 in the setting of hypersensitivity uh, to E. coli-derived asparaginase. You know, so with those key developments, of course, we've, we've developed or, or shown great successes, uh, but challenges do remain uh, in this patient population, and, and it behooves us to, to continue to move this needle forward, and some of these abstracts that we'll talk about uh, talk about some of these topics. But, of course, we've seen in improved results of first-line therapy for all age groups. Uh, we know uh, intensive chemotherapy is essential for cure. Uh, but uh, we have to consider uh, what, what are the side effects of these things, both long and short term. You know, the, the, the acute toxicities uh, can be uh, limiting uh, depending on the ages of the patients as well. Uh, what about resistance? Resistance uh, to the medicines that we're using can, can come about, and so we need to have newer, um, newer medications uh, that we can provide patients, especially in the relapse refractory disease setting. And so we need to optimize the use of our standard chemotherapy uh, compounds in, in adults and in, in adolescents and young adults for that matter. And these new targeted compounds with different mechanisms of action allow us to do some of this. Um, and you know, now, now we're, we're, ch we're challenging these traditional treatment paradigms as we'll see uh, with some of these abstracts and, and where we can use these newer medications. As we think about some of the challenges specifically um, as it relates uh, to one of the compounds we talked about uh, in the timeline, um, asparaginase, uh, we uh, have recently seen what, what impact, the impact of um, discontinuing um, a medication that we know is important uh, for patients with this disease. And, and this uh, here um, evidence demonstrated uh, by uh, Sumit Gupta and colleagues uh, from the Children's Oncology Group ALL Committee uh, that looked at the effect of, of discontinuing uh, this drug in patients with uh, high-risk uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, pediatric patients, uh, I should say. And, and what they saw is, is that, you know, in those patients who weren't able to receive their prescribed asparaginase courses, you know, there was an increased risk of, of an event by 50% uh, among this group of patients. And, and looking at the Kaplan-Meier curve, uh, you can see in the dashed orange line that these patients who didn't receive their asparaginase doses had a significantly inferior disease-free survival as opposed to those patients who completed either their prescribed long-acting courses or were able to um, complete their prescribed courses uh, with Erwinia. So now we'll get into um, some of the uh, uh, themes uh, from the abstracts that, that we've selected to review with you today from, from ASCO and, and EHA. And uh, you know, we'll first start uh, with asparaginase itself and, and what um, can we learn from, from what was presented recently at ASCO and, and what's out there uh, now uh, that's new for patients. And, and you know, if you're treating patients with ALL, you, you are familiar with the approved asparaginase preparations. Um, you know, on the, on, in the first two columns, we have pegaspergase and calaspergase pegol. These are the long-acting uh, products that are E. coli-derived uh, products that are used uh, in the first line for, for patients uh, who have ALL uh, with the approved dosing uh, included there of note. Uh, Calaspergase uh, is not approved in patients uh, who are older uh, than 21 years of age. Uh, um, and then if you look uh, to the, the second two columns there, Erwinia um, asparaginase and recombinant Erwinia asparaginase, uh, these products are 
short acting uh, products, as you can see uh, with their half lives uh, di um, displayed there for you all. Uh, the dosing uh, as well uh, is there, and in what I will point out um, uh, for the recombinant Erwinia, currently the, the approval is for 25 milligrams per meter squared on an every 48 hour basis. Uh, however, there are additional um, dosing regimens under uh, investigation, and, and we will talk about that uh, in just a little bit. So looking at the standard management of hypersensitivity reactions um, with uh, primary, primary E. coli-derived asparaginase products, uh, you, we uh, encounter these uh, in patients uh, uh, to a degree that, that's not actually rare. So about 10 to 15% of patients will, will have a hypersensitivity reaction um, to a first-line product. Uh, this includes uh, anaphylaxis allergy, but also some immune destruction uh, uh, with neutralizing antibodies. You can also more rarely have silent inactivation, so inactivation of the actual asparaginase molecule uh, without signs of hypersensitivity. Uh, we think this is rare, but you know we're, we're just starting to study this more and more, so we'll see, especially in the light of, of pre-medication for patients, uh, that's um, becoming more uh, more and more um, used throughout uh, uh, the treatment of this disease. Uh, but for, this, uh, for these hypersensitivity reactions, we, we know that the asparaginase is often interrupted. Um, we have to you know, give uh, treatments for, for acute uh, anaphylaxis, and this includes antihistamines, glucocorticoids, um, Tylenol if, if needed, acetaminophen, and, and uh, epinephrine in, in those serious cases. And then it's called uh, you know, to switch to Erwinia, uh, which is an alternatively derived product, and most patients who, who have hypersensitivity to an E. coli-derived product will tolerate this Erwinia product. But in the case of a diagnosed inactivation, the standard next step, uh, as we said, is to switch to Erwinia, and uh, unfortunately, shortages over, uh, of, of these uh, medications over the past you know, seven to 10 years ha have led to uh, alternative practices, which include desensitization, um, but ultimately this has led to the development of a new medication that's Erwinia-derived, but uh, using a recombinant um, uh, production process. And we'll talk about this um, new medication now. And, and this is uh, recombinant chrysanthospace um, or recombinant Erwinia, also known as JZP458. It's produced in a pseudomonas fluorescence background, uh, and it's non-E. coli-derived. Um, it's very similar to Erwinia uh, asparaginase uh, in its amino acid sequence. And it has been uh, now approved uh, for use as a component of multi-agent chemotherapeutic backbone for the treatment of patients with ALL and lymphoblastic lymphoma in adult and pediatrics uh, uh, who have developed uh, hypersensitivity to an coli-derived product. And so uh, recently, which was presented uh, by Mays and colleagues at uh, the ASCO 2022, uh, sorry, 2022 meeting, uh, was the phase 2-3 trial of a recombinant Erwinia asparaginase in patients with ALL and lymphoblastic lymphoma. And these patients uh, uh, who were eligible um, had to have a grade three or greater allergic reaction or silent inactivation. Uh, it included two parts, which looked at the intermuscular route of administration and the intravenous route of administration. The abstract focused uh, only on the intramuscular route, um, but these patients received six doses of JZP458 on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule. And the duration of treatment depended on how much was uh, remaining in their treatment schedule. It was a, um, a pharmacokinetic uh, study and included many different uh, time points, eight total in the first course of treatment and, uh, uh, and several other uh, PK collection time points in, in, in subsequent courses of treatment. 
And what the what they reported uh, was a high proportion of patients were able to achieve uh, the target uh, Nader serum asparaginase activity level, which was greater than or equal to 0.1, at both the 48 and 72 hour time points in patients who received uh, 25 milligrams per meter squared on Monday, Wednesday, and 50 milligrams per meter squared on Friday. As you see here in the bar graph, uh, you see the different cohorts that uh, were enrolled at the different doses, purple um, being the last 48-hour time point and yellow being the last 72-hour time point. The focus of the report at ASCO was on this cohort 1C, and, uh, and as you're reviewing this, uh, that is uh, the, one to, the, the one to focus on. Of course, asparaginase has uh, adverse events, and we'll talk about these with each of the abstracts we discuss. Um, the uh, rate of, of treatment-related adverse reaction uh, was, was not surprising. It was consistent with other asparaginase products. Uh, of note, um, the, the, the events that led to discontinuation are the ones that really um, are, are the ones that we are we're primarily focused on. And you see uh, pancreatitis and, and hypersensitivity to this product. Uh, leading to discontinuation in some patients, uh, but uh, from a uh, um, a hepatobiliary standpoint, this was uh, a quite quietly uh, well tolerated uh, medication. So take homes from that abstract included uh, that this uh, drug is is currently approved, as we said, at uh, a 25 milligrams per meter squared dose every 48 hours. the The focus of this um, abstract was to call attention to the uh, differential dosing of cohort 1C, which included 25 milligrams per meter squared on Monday, Wednesday, and 50 on Friday. And, and they did show um, adequate uh, uh, serum asparagus activity at both 48 and 72 hours uh, uh, with this cohort. Uh, the safety profile was consistent uh, with the published literature on asparagus products. And this updated data from all the patients that were uh, included on the trial has been uh, submitted to the FDA to support a, a label update, and, and this should be uh, shortly coming. When we think about uh, the practical applications uh, uh, of asparaginase and how this uh, affects our our practice in patients, uh, we look at um, uh, we can look, for example, at a patient, uh, a 16-year-old with pH-negative BALL who has a reaction to uh, PEG aspergase um, during consolidation, uh, and we know we need to switch uh, to Erwinia-derived product. Um, if we're using recombinant Erwinia, then what what dosing strategies should we think about? As we mentioned, this is FDA approved at, at the 25 milligrams per meter squared dose every 48 hours. But sometimes this isn't feasible for all centers completing this dosing uh, on a Saturday or Sunday. And, and then it comes into question, can you work this out with your nursing staff, with your, with your inpatient staff if you don't have clinic uh, weekend hours? And, and so recognizing this, you know, this is why uh, this data uh, that is reported uh, is so important. Um, this 25, 25, 50, uh, milligrams per meter squared dosing allows for s adequate 72-hour depletion, so you do not need to um, uh, dose on the weekends. However, again, uh, you know, working this out uh, with families and, and understanding, you know, that this is a higher dose, uh, the, the trial did show um, uh, uh, equivalent side effects at, at all doses, so uh, it seems to be safe and, and it hasn't been updated yet in the label, but uh, something that, that centers are considering uh, uh, when they are thinking about um, a situation like this, and so as we look now, um, turning our attention to to CAR T cell therapy and what was reported recently at ASCO and EHA uh, in the treatment of pediatric and adult ALL, we know that um, in previous reports, uh, 
these uh, products are, are uh, incredibly effective, especially in a multiple relapsed refractory patient population. You know, these are the major studies that have had the most um, uh, or some of the most accrual, the Linea study, which looked at Tisangin Lecleucel, uh, uh, and then the Zuma 3 and 4 studies, which, which looked at Brexlucel. And you see here um, the efficacy uh, uh, was seen you know, early on, and uh, of course accompanying toxicity in these patients, which, in, which includes cytokine release syndrome, neurological side effects, was noted. Uh, but still, again, this is a multiply refractory, uh, relapse refractory population. Uh, so these toxicities... Um, are, you know, uh, for the most part tolerable. And so what happened at the, at the annual meetings this year at EHA, EHA they, they updated the Alinea um, uh, trial uh, and were able to show sustained long-term benefits in patients with, with minimal uh, late side effects. And, and so they had a, a greater than five-year follow-up uh, study uh, of this uh, population of patients, which included 97 patients that were enrolled in, in 79 of, the, of these patients uh, received uh, drug, and um, the overall response rate was was 82 percent, and and the five-year relapse-free survival rate was 49 percent. Uh, the median relapse-free survival was not reached. I think um, reviewing this in, in a little bit closer uh, uh, with a little bit closer eyes, you you know the the prob- probability of BCL aplasia at six and 12 months was 83 and 71 percent. This is something we're watching for in this population as as when they recover their B-cells, there's concern that, that their disease can recur as well. Uh, ASCO, they looked at, they um, updated the Zuma-3 trial, which, which looked at Brexit cells efficacy in adult ALL. And again, um, showing some, some very impressive numbers here with, uh, on the left, the overall survival in phase two treated patients, and, and on the right, uh, the pool phase one and two treated patients. And, and looking at um, all of these patients together, the median overall survival was, was over 25 months. Um, and uh, uh, and was and was and uh, was actually not reached in the phase two patients uh, who achieved uh, complete response. So so again, some impressive numbers for for, for a very difficult population of patients. Uh, practically looking at um, how we uh, think about CAR T cell therapy and, and its complications, uh, there are these now two CAR T constructs that are approved in ALL. Uh, there are societies that have published guidelines on on how to think about. Uh, this therapy. Uh, if you if you use an example of a patient who had relapsed refractory ALL, B-cell ALL, uh, with third relapse, of course, CD19 positive a patient, um, you think about the co- complications uh, that could happen, uh, you know, which include infection. We talked about the neurological toxicities. Uh, we talked about, you know, how these patients uh, can have lots of side effects, and, and this can be something to consider. And, and so, you know, looking at, at these things that, that can happen, Reviewing the recommendations from these societies is important, and seeing um, how you can uh, uh, ameliorate some of these side effects. You, do you have to wait a little bit longer to infuse? Do you have to bridge them with something uh, other than, than CAR-T to get them past this uh, point? Uh, something to, to be mindful of. So as we move then now to our third uh, subject, the chemosparing options, and, and again, we talked about these more targeted agents uh, in, in a particular set of population of patients uh, for improving outcomes and decreasing toxicity. Uh, you know, when we think about these targeted agents, tyrosine kinase inhibitors are some of the first ones that, that come to mind, especially in uh, pH-positive ALL disease. Uh, and then we also look at chemotherapy-sparing options, and, and this includes blinitumumab, which we, which we briefly mentioned on the timeline. You know, we know that these agents are effective 
in patients with pH positive disease, these, these tyrosine kinase inhibitors. We know that blindatumumab is an effective therapy in relapse refractory disease. And, and so um, some of the, the investigations that were reported at ASCO and, and EHA, uh, this included a phase two study that assessed the chemo-free combination of panatinib, which is a third generation tyrosine kinase inhibitor, um, which has uh, been uh, investigated for, for some years now, and, and blindatumumab uh, in adults with newly diagnosed pH positive ALL and relapse refractory pH positive ALL or CML with, with, late, with um, uh, lymphoid blast phase uh, crisis. And you, hear, you see here that the, the protocol um, uh, that was uh, done in this phase two study with panatinib up front uh, um, along with blindatumumab uh, over the first month uh, and then a consolidation phase again with blindatumumab uh, and, and um, panatinib and then uh, a maintenance phase with panatinib. What was reported um, uh, at, at both ASCO and EHA is that this is a, a highly active um, combination of drugs in newly diagnosed and relapse refractory positive uh, patients. Uh, you see the, the extremely high CR-CRI rate in, front, in the front line, almost 100%, and even in the, in, in, in above 90% in the relapse refractory uh, population as well. Uh, turning uh, to, um, to looking at the molecular response, you see some uh, very impressive numbers with complete molecular response, you know, over 80% and just about 80% in the relapse refractory population. And in major molecular remission, uh, or response, I should say, you know, uh, almost getting to 100% again in the front line and, and, and nearly 90% in relapse refractory patients. So, so again, this, 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 these targeted therapies together showing great activity and, and then looking at the survival rates in the newly diagnosed patients, over 90% of patients uh, were alive two years after. In the relapse refractory patients, over 60%. And again, this is a, a typical disease that you would think would, would, would carry much lower um, survival rates uh, is in, in, and um, you're, you're seeing much improvement uh, with, with these two targeted agents. And so, uh, again, as we talked about, these, these, um, these new compounds do have their, their uh, toxicities as well, but, but these two agents together really um, showed uh, a very favorable toxicity profile, profile, especially when you compare it to, to um, uh, myelosuppressive chemotherapy. And, and really the, the major side effects, which, which are known um, uh, with panatinib, were, were um, uh, thrombotic complications, which included a stroke and, and, and a deep vein thrombosis. Uh, blindatumumab has neurotoxicities, neuro, um, but these are typically uh, tolerated uh, pretty well. Uh, there was one patient who had to discontinue because of a tremor uh, with blindatumumab. And so in summary, of course, uh, further study is needed. These numbers aren't, aren't huge, uh, but they are significant, and, and you did see significant responses uh, that uh, were demonstrated in these reports that show this combination is highly active um, in, these, in this uh, newly diagnosed and relapsed refractory population. Um, if we're getting these, these types of survival numbers at two years, uh, it behooves us to think about transplant as transplant um, was thought to be necessary in this population, but, but maybe not so in this uh, newly diagnosed population with this combination. Uh, time will tell. Uh, and then again, the safety is consistent with prior experience with these agents. Um, for practical applications uh, of this, of, of this regimen, again, I think it's, it's uh, understanding the unique safety profiles of, of these new agents is important. We're used to kind of classic myelosuppressive chemotherapeutic um, complications. And, and these, while they can be um, suppressive to the bone marrow, 
uh, aren't necessarily isn't necessarily the, the major um, thing to think about. And and with panatinib, um, these uh, um, thrombotic events uh, are something to note. Uh, there are also cardiovascular um, complications that that should be uh, monitored for closely. Uh, and then with blindatumumab, while this is a medication that we now had you know about a decade of experience using. Um, uh, people uh, are are familiar with it, and you know, in 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 past cases, early on, we we're using it in a very um, you know in a population of patients who are, have lots of disease burden, and you see more CRS or cytokine release syndrome. We're not seeing that as much anymore. But if we are using it in newly diagnosed population, it's something to be mindful of, and and have an experienced nursing staff to help you manage these things. Neurotoxicity is is something that some patients we know will have, but but again, watching out for these and. And, and being mindful of this side effect, um, you can usually um, subdue it and, and, and get past this, and it, it rarely leads to discontinuation of medication. So that concludes our exploration of the noteworthy recent evidence in ALL as reported at the ASCO and EHA meetings. I hope you found this activity informative and useful for your practice. Thank you all for joining us. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DGJ860. This program is supported by an independent medical education grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals.